0: Well, yesterday, of course, was Halloween. Yesterday was Halloween, uh, which always presents a pretty major dilemma for Christians, because you know, somebody's going to, you know, throw out the, you know, (laughs) are you truly spiritual sort of, you know, test question for believers at a time like Halloween and and ask you something like, hey, do you celebrate fall festival? (laughs) You thought I was going to say Halloween, right? Uh, They throw out this terminology about like fall festival because what they really mean is do you celebrate Halloween? But they throw out fall festival sometimes to see that, to see if you know that, you know, Christian evangelical lingo. If you're like, are you on the same team as me and your church does fall festivals instead of something else? Like, you know, really, they're probably doing that as a test case to see if your church is going to have free trunk or treat candy. But what they really mean is, do you celebrate Halloween? And there's something real to that question. I'm not trying to just trivialize it. That's a, that's a real concern. We're caught in this now-and-not-yet world where we have to decide how is it that we live as, as pure people, as, as genuine believers and followers of Jesus, where we're surrounded by a world of sin, and we also have that in us. So it's a real question for us. Do you celebrate Halloween? It's a valid concern. Just just this week in conversation with one person, they were real adamant. They were like, we do not, we do not celebrate Halloween. <laughs> and I was like, okay, super Christian, I hope you enjoy being intentionally boring. No. <laughs> but seriously, it does present, you know, a real issue because, because you're, you're presented automatically with this dilemma as a believer. You can respond in one of two kinds of ways about this. If I say that I do celebrate Halloween, then then do I sound like a heathen who doesn't really love Jesus? On the other hand, if I say I, I don't celebrate Halloween, then I sound sort of like this joyless fuddy duddy curmudgeon who is against children, you know, having fun and eating candy. So that's sort of the dilemma in this. I mean, this is a high-stakes decision, especially if you're a believer and you have kids or grandkids. Because not only is your spiritual health being questioned, but as soon as this question is presented to you, if you've got kids or grandkids and you're a believer, then you're pretty much being asked to decide between whether or not you love Jesus or your children. So for us as a family, we just kind of decided that, uh, that even though we don't really like... Halloween. We don't really celebrate it a whole lot. You know, we put some pumpkins out on the front porch and maybe like a harvest-themed wreath on the, the front porch there. Um, you know, we let our kids sort of do some some treating. I don't call it trick-or-treating, by the way, because in our family, if you do any tricks, you're going to get grounded. And uh, it's only a trick if somebody, like if you show up to the door and somebody doesn't give you good candy, you know what I mean? Because it's really all about the treating. It's all about getting the candy. A trick is when somebody you know, puts a piece of fruit in your basket and you're, when you're a kid and you look down like, really? So we just call it treating in our family. And uh, we participate a smidge in that kind of way um, because, you know, I've got kids and I like candy. So we we'll let our kids do some treating. This was our two-year-old spider uh, this year. Two-year-old spider there. Very scary. <laughs> Actually, you've never seen a cuter spider in your life. And uh, we asked some folks here at First Christian on Facebook just to sort of tag us if they didn't mind us sharing some pictures of their own costumes and families and kids. So here are some of the other kids' costumes we came across here. We've got a couple Northy kids here. Keep going there. we got a couple Bowling kids here. That's one of my favorites there. That's good. That's good. Got some drink wines there with little David. I think that's a McCoy kid. Yeah. That's a, that's T.J. Morris. Some Stags kids there. And we've got an elders family. Yes, got an elders family among us today. That's right. And then uh, there's Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. now everybody knows what happens when you come back from halloween getting candy when kids come back from treating they have this they have this thing that always happens I, i promise you all of this is headed somewhere there's this huge stash of candy when they come back and what do they always do first they strategize they dump it out, sort it all out, and then they come up with this sort of plan of attack about how I'm going to eat my candy. You know, they spread it out on the sort of dining room or war room table, and they say, This is going here, here's why, and this is how I'm going to eat my candy and in this kind of, kind of way. For me, though, this just wasn't just about, like, what kind of order I'm going to eat my candy and why. This was, for me, like a hard line strategy of world domination so I could take over the world's chocolate supply. That was my goal. Because for me, there are two categories of candy. Number one, chocolate. Number two, all other candy I don't like that will help me trade for chocolate. <laughs> Some of you know where I'm coming from in that. And I was a hardliner, like writing down on the piece of paper, here's my, you know, categories, and here's the order of, of what I'm going to do, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups first. So, you know, I, I would have this hardline strategy about it. And for me, looking back, I realized... I realized that there was one cardinal rule about this, all this candy stuff for me. I only traded and I never shared. Looking back, I realized I was a candy Scrooge. I really was. Like, you've got your own candy. If there's something you want to trade, fine. But you don't get some of my candy for free just because you don't know how to beg for more chocolate at the door. Which is, which is something that I had, had begun to, 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 to cultivate well. Like, I'd stand there and say, oh, I love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. They're my favorite. Plop, another prisoner of war in my bag. That was sort of how I felt about it as a kid. Now, just think about this scenario here. I got free candy handed to me by people who went to the store And purchased it with their money. And then after I get home and I sort of budget all my candy and I scheme to take over the world's chocolate supply, I refuse, like I was a hardliner, I refuse to share and might only trade if I got something in return. Even if no other peanut butter cups were there with the other kid, even if they didn't have any chocolate, even if their candy supply really just stunk compared to mine, I was about getting my chocolate. Think about what goes on there. I've been given something as a gift, and I realize we're just talking about candy, but it didn't take long for that to become for me a commodity of exchange in my economy of self-control. And friends, unfortunately, not much has changed for so many of us in so many areas of our lives since our candy days. We treat our resources as commodities of exchange in our economies of self-control. I told you we're headed somewhere. Whether it's candy, or it's money, or it's any other resource we have at our disposal, when we hoard something that was given to us, we are, by definition, lacking generosity. We're lacking the generous spirit in which it was given to us. And I don't care how hard you worked for it. That's how it works in this new kingdom. That's how it works when you follow Jesus. That's what resources are when you understand God is the giver of all gifts. Listen, friends, Scripture makes abundantly clear in place after place after place after place that everything we have, everything we call our own, is a gift from God's generous heart. Take that to the bank. Romans 11.36 tells us that all things are from God. All things are from God. Romans 10.12 says that the Lord bestows His riches on all who call on Him. Ephesians 1 is, is filled with this kind of language that talks about how God in, endows us, He bestows on us, He gives to us spiritual blessings that come from heaven that we could not otherwise earn. He sa- it says He has lavished, He has lavished on us the riches of His grace. First Timothy 6.17 tells us, it warns us not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's all over the scriptures. John 1.16 says that it is from God's fullness that we have received grace upon grace. Friends, you become generous when you understand that everything you have is really a gift. And when it comes to ministry, when it comes to how you serve, when it comes to how you use of your, your time and your talents and your treasures, your resources, it's no different. You become generous in how you serve when you understand that everything you have is a gift. <laughs> you see, you can still be technically generous in giving of time and talents and treasure in empirical data kinds of terms and yet still not be generous in a way that parallels God's heart to freely give. So the Scriptures call us to be people who don't just give, who don't just give of time, treasures, and talents because we ought to, but because we want to be gracious and loving and merciful in the same way that he has been to us. That is the theological center of Christian giving and generosity. It is a parallel for what we've already experienced from God. So when we enter the scene here in Luke, in chapter 9, in verse 46 here, the disciples are demonstrating a lack of understanding about that sort of theological center, that what we do, that how we act, that our generosity comes from this place that parallels God's generosity to us. So here they are. They've just come back from a, from a time of ministry and it's like they've got this sort of candy set out and they're strategizing about what to do here. They're talking about what had been done. Instead of giving testimony in that moment, instead of giving testimony about the work of God that they had been experiencing, they were telling the story as if the work was theirs, as if they were the heroes. He had just told them earlier on in chapter 9. He had just told them earlier on in chapter 9 that following Him would, deny, would involve denying themselves, would involve taking up the cross daily. But here's what happened. Verse 46, they come back from ministry and it says this, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by His side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Look at the the way that receives a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Look back at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Press pause real quick here. Earlier in chapter 9, Jesus had just been telling them, That following him would involve denying self, taking up the cross daily, every day, denying self, dying to self. He had just told them how he himself was going to be moving toward Jerusalem to be rejected and to suffer. He had just told them that ministry for them would involve similar suffering and rejection. And yet here they are, they come back from their their hall of candy. They're already jockeying for position in this moment. They're like, hey, check it out. I got six peanut butter cups. He's got three. Hey, Jesus, who's cooler? I mean, it's a little silly sounding, but it's about that kind of level of comparison. They come back from being out doing ministry, and they're arguing already about who's in charge. But look what Jesus does. Look at how he responds to them, the same way he always does. Look at this, verse 47. But Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So because the the disciples were sort of jockeying for position and seeing ministry as a way to achieve their own power and status, He brought next to him this this child, the most vulnerable member of society, to make the point that ministry is a means to care for those who are most truly in need. This is why, incidentally, this is why children's ministry matters. And is something we must put our best people, and resources into. Because, let me say it this way, we've got a whole mission field of young kids who may or may not know Jesus yet and may not have known the Gospel remotely, remotely, as much as you do. Now, we honor Jesus when we care for those who are most truly needful. And those who are most truly needful are those who don't know Him. This isn't just Jesus picking somebody vulnerable because they don't have financial or socio-political resources. He's not just picking somebody because they're sort of like bottom of the total pole in society. He's picking a child because a child may not even know Him yet. Those who are most truly needful are those who are needful of relationship with Jesus. Don't, don't ever, ever, ever forget that. The mission is for people first and foremost to know Jesus. You'll see that later on. I'm not making this up. Just keep reading the Bible. Now, notice something else here. In this scene so far, Jesus could have said, you pathetic and selfish dolts, what on earth makes you think that that kind of social posturing with one another is the kind of greatness that I'm wanting from you. What makes you think, by what I've said or what I've done, that would, that would fit, right? Like, like, duh, he could have said all of that. <laughs> but he doesn't do anything like that. He says, hey, let me, let, me, let me show you again gently, let me show you again gently what it looks like to do ministry that fits with my heart of giving and love and mercy notice in the coming verses how generous jesus is in the way he acts of ministry in ministry and how stingy in attitude the disciples are and it's, it's easy to vilify the disciples it's easy to say all oh, those those silly people they didn't see it yet we've got it in black and white <laughs> we just have the advantage of looking back and reading and, and, and seeing their mistakes Lest we think we'd be something special. I would never want to see the story of how Scott the disciple first followed Jesus. (laughs) Notice in the coming verses how generous Jesus is and how stingy the disciples are. They need to keep learning how to share their candy. Verse 49. John answered, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. (laughs) Listen to what he says. Because he does not follow with us. Literally, that means because he does not follow us, because he is not one of us. Most literally, that's what it says here. But Jesus said to him, again, Jesus said to him, being generous, being gracious, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. John answers in a way that shows that he didn't, he didn't even notice the ministry the other person is doing. How often do we see that mistake? Uh, we think we are omniscient about the ministry going on in other people's lives. Are you kidding me? John doesn't notice the ministry the other person is doing. All he sees, all he sees is that this other person doing the work that, in fact, earlier on in the testimony here of Luke, we learn that they couldn't do themselves as disciples, all he sees is that this person's not one of us. How often, friends, do we discount others' work because all we see is that the other person is not one of us? That's not ministry that fits with the generous heart of God. That's ministry that has a constant need to self-righteously build up one's own sense of worth in ways, friends, that is not going to bring joy, (laughs) but is just going to continue to bring you to the end of yourself and frustrate you. Jesus is saying here, your worth, your true greatness, is when you serve those who are in need and not yourselves. Simple terms. He's saying, you have me, you have everything you need. Now get out of yourselves and go serve generously as I have served you. Now this next verse is significant in Luke because it begins a large middle section of Luke where Jesus begins to move toward the cross. That's why it says this, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is a critical point in Jesus' ministry, and so Luke makes an important point of it in a huge middle section here of Luke, beginning with verse 51. The phrase, set his face, is a way of, of grabbing some Old Testament language about setting his face like flint. In other words, it's a, it's a resolved, like laser-focused, nothing else is going to distract him kind of thing, because think about what Jesus is doing. He's going to the cross, significant uh, process of going toward uh, the total self-denial that would result in us having salvation. So he's got to be resolved about this, laser-focused about this. So, so Luke makes a big point of this here. We know that Jesus has already said to the disciples, we know this from 922 where he says this and a couple other places as well, he knows he's going to Jerusalem to die and the disciples do too. The disciples do too. So it says this, Let's get this working. Let's get this rolling. Let's make this mission happen. That's what he begins to do here, starting in verses 52 and following. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. This is significant. To make preparations for him. But the people there in Samaria did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, now even though the Samaritans, who who were sort of like the Jews in that they believed in God, but they worshipped Him uh, differently. Even though the Samaritans were considered by the Jews a pretty messed up sort of half-Jew, sort of, you know, to be avoided because they they were the liberals, you know. Um, Even though they considered them like that, and they were off limits in terms of being friends, Jesus went into Samaria. Jesus went into Samaria to stay there overnight. That's what it means when it says to make preparations for him. Now listen, Jews didn't just stay overnight in Samaria. In fact, you planned your route to Jerusalem. That's why it's significant that he's talking about Samaria here, Luke is, because he set his face to Jerusalem, which means you go through or around Samaria. And if Jews were going to go through Samaria, they would plan ahead so that they could cover it in one day which was a pretty serious physical task at the time. To, to cover all of Samaria in one day to get to Jerusalem is pretty hard to do, so, so not many people do that. Instead, they would most of the time go a two to three days journey around Samaria so that they get to Jerusalem and remain pure. At least that's what they thought. <laughs> so when Luke here says he sent messengers ahead of him to enter the village of Samaria, of the Samaritans, to make preparations for him. This is a radical statement of the generosity of a God who wants to save sinners. The people did not receive him, it says, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So Jesus, instead of avoiding contact, demonstrates a heart of generosity and Luke records it Because the disciples are sitting there going, wait, you sent messengers into Samaria for an overnight stay? Something about this I don't get yet, because that doesn't comport, that doesn't fit, that doesn't accord with what I know. And yet he does it. Another demonstration of the heart of generosity as opposed to the disciples. So when they saw this, that's why the disciples responded this way, verse 54, when the disciples, James and John, saw it, when they saw that the Samaritans had rejected Jesus' message and that yet even then he had been generous and going through Samaria slowly, even overnight, they said, Lord, do you want us to bring down the hammer? Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume it? Because we will. We'll we'll get at it. Come on. Let's do this. (laughs) But that's not what he does. Verse 55, he turned, he rebuked them. Now, lest we fault the disciples, and it's easy to do, lest we fault them for being, you know, sort of total goobers, which is easy to do when we have their mistakes written down for us in black and white. You've got to understand that there's biblical precedent for this calling down a fire thing. You know, there's, there's some biblical precedent for it. Elijah did it in First Kings as a vehicle, however, and this is important to note, as a vehicle for God's judgment. God had judged through Elijah. In this scenario, the disciples were like, "Let's do this. I'm ready to judge today. Let's get rid of these sinners now." <laughs> does that sound Does that sound generous? Actually, unfortunately, it sounds a lot like what I know I want to do sometimes. I mean, how often do we get this wrong? We often bring a message of salvation from the judgment of men sometimes. When what we're called to do is bring a message of salvation from the judgment of God. That's an important difference there. We often like to, we're inviting people to escape from my judgment But Jesus is saying, that's not how this works here. That's not how this works in this kingdom. Your job is to preach the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. Vengeance is God's work. Verse 56. So they went on to another village. (laughs) They kept right on in ministry. Now there are three incidents coming up here in rapid fire succession that show that if you're following from self... You will not serve generously. If you're following from self, you will at some level not serve generously. We'll do this pretty quickly here. It says this, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. (laughs) I mean, uh, that's not in the text so much, but that's kind of the feeling. This person's like, I'm ready to go, yeah. And Jesus is like, whoa, slow down. There's something you're not getting here yet. Get are a little too excited without knowing what's really involved in following me here. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus basically says, whoa here, slow down. You've got to count the cost of following me first. He's basically saying, listen, I work for no worldly gain. Following me is a low-pay job. Unless you understand that following me involves having no home, you won't serve without the need to be recognized in this world. If you're following from self, at some level, you will not serve generously. To another he said, verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But the person responded, he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, in a patriarchal society uh, like this one is that Jesus is speaking in here, uh, burying one's father is about as important a job as it gets. Like family was everything. One's identity was, was wrapped up almost entirely in and rising and following with whether or not you did things that pleased your family. I and mean, it's just how it was. And if you were all about pleasing your family, pleasing your father was like number one, two, and three. And the rest of your family was like four and following. So like this was a big, big deal. So someone comes to Jesus and says, let me bury my father. Which is basically like saying, I'll follow you if. This example and the next example is, I will follow you if examples. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 60. Verse 60, he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead now the physically dead cannot bury the physically dead so that's not what jesus is saying here (laughs) he is saying let those who are spiritually dead worry about their own concerns these are hard words friends he's saying let those who are spiritually dead worry about their own concerns I, i gotta tell you there is a lot of inward pull to worry about burying the spiritual dead it can be a great distraction from kingdom ministry let me say it this way let those who are not concerned about being fruitful for kingdom ministry carry on their own non-mission hard words from jesus important words Let those who are not fruitful for kingdom ministry carry on their own mission and continue to distract from the reason Jesus came. Let them go ahead and do that. You. You. As for you, he says. Those are the next words. But as for you, keep your eyes on the prize. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. If you're following from self, You will not serve generously. If you're following Christ, you will proclaim the kingdom of God. The third example here of I will follow if disciples is the next two verses, 61 and 2. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Same kind of thing as the last one. Jesus said to him, no one, this is a great phrase, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. A farmer who looks back at the former way of life, is likely to produce a crooked furrow. A worker who holds to a former way of life is likely to hit a rock and break the plow. Those who are fruitful for kingdom ministry and work, Jesus is saying here, are those who look forward and keep their eyes on mission, which is proclaiming the kingdom of God that's the kind of worker Jesus is seeking because that's the kind of worker who wants to serve in ways that fit with the generous heart of God and if you're seeking if you're seeking self in your work in your ministry you'll get what you you get what you want to get and that will be your reward if you're following from self you can't serve generously You'll pervert it into just another self salvation exercise. Not being mean. That's just how this is. And Jesus says it time and again. Let those who don't care about being fruitful for the kingdom of God carry on their own non mission. We got too many people who need to know Jesus. For us to worry about draining resources from mission. I'm not making it up. Look at the next two verses. This is about mission 10 1 and 2. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town. And place where he himself was about to go. 72 is a significant number for the Jews. It comes first from Genesis 10, which is what we call the Table of Nations. It's the way the Jews counted all of the nations of the world. So it's no accident that Jesus appoints 72, it's a statement about their mission. It's a statement about what is involved in who you are now as a kingdom worker. Who you are now as a kingdom worker, if you follow Jesus in the ways that he's been talking about here, you are a person who cares about harvest. And if you care about harvest, then your heart will want to minister in ways that parallel the ways the Lord has ministered to you. This is urgent work. There's no other other time you need to wait for till you get involved in this. This is it. These people are the resources. Your life's resources are the kingdom resources. That's why he says this in verse 2. The harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of work to do. But sadly, the laborers are few. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and seek to send out laborers into his harvest. Here's what we learn in this passage, friends. In this kingdom you cannot minister from self. Jesus left his throne to come to you. He did so from selflessness and not from self. You can't hoard grace because as soon as you do, it becomes something else. Now, this isn't automatic for most people because you can be technically generous giving financially of your time or your energy and you can still be ungenerous in your attitude, in your motivation, in in how you carry on ministry. You can put in hours of effort and still be a jerk. Ungenerous in your dealings with people. Been there, done that. Friends, for the church to be the church, we all have to be on mission. This doesn't work if we've got a whole bunch of I will follow if people. This doesn't work if your approach to participation in the church is more about consuming than it is contributing. You'll set up your own kingdom if you do that. actual quote from a from a friend's church a member in their church I really love the size of our youth group smaller youth group and I really don't want it to get any bigger because I like how much attention my daughter gets I don't really want that to change I could tell you example after example after example after example of that kind of attitude of the inward selfish pull of a lack of generosity that doesn't understand what you've been given in Jesus. and That's tragic. Listen, you're either draining ministry resources or you're offering them to the world. We don't have time to babysit people on this mission. We just don't. We have all the time and all the people and all the resources that God's given us to do what he wants us to do, to be people on mission. But we don't have time. We don't have time to babysit people who are not. If you don't get this, if you don't understand serving from a heart of generosity that takes its cue from the nature in which the gift was given to us, your generosity will continue to be about trying to get instead of giving. You'll turn this You'll turn this into consuming instead of contributing. Friends, what would it be like if we had a group of people whose first thought, whose impulse was to be generous and contributing like Jesus does for us? We would be a witness, a corporate witness to the God of grace when we understand that everything we have is a gift. Let's pray. Lord, You've given us far more than we could possibly know to ask for. And so we love You for that. Because while we were still sinners, You reconciled us to Yourself. You gave us perfection in the life of Jesus that we have tried so hard to earn. Lord, thank You for the freedom of knowing not only do we not have to, but we never could. And So that we would be free to act in ways that are a witness to Your love for us. Teach us to do this, Lord. Give us increasingly a heart that confesses the sin of tight-fisted hoarding. And give us insight break us and humble us so that we would be open-handed givers of grace. Lord, we ask that You would teach us toward that end. In the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. We want to extend to You the same kind of invitation we just talked about, which is an invitation that says, Listen. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation, Scripture says. There's not some someday when you're ready, someday when you've got it together, someday if, I will follow you if. The time to respond to the Gospel is always now. And it it doesn't really actually matter where you are in this journey. If you've known God for a long time and known Jesus as Lord and Savior, there's something the Spirit is working on you in. He's working with you somehow. And so we trust that this will continue to be a, a place, a time for you to respond to that. If the Gospel is new to you, you're not sure the, what this lingo about Jesus and sin and salvation and reconciliation means, and I would love to talk with you and pray with you. If, if this is the time where...